0: Thank you, appreciate it. Um, this is uh, this is interesting because this is the first time I've taught. <laughs> this is the first time I've taught back to back sermons, um, uh, and it's uh, it's challenging because you got to prepare. Bam, bam. It's uh, being a full-time pastor, which I'm not, by the way. I'm a bivocational pastor. I'm just here to support in, in the most sense. But just recognizing being a full-time pastor and, and preparing a sermon every single week is really hard work. It's really challenging. So just want to pitch that. Appreciate Donnie. Appreciate him. He does a wonderful, wonderful job. And I pray that he's doing, having a great vacation. Uh, we're going to continue on the little verse, up, oh, and it's up on the top, right, this book of James. Every summer we go through a book of the Bible, and we're in the book of James. We're going to continue on that. And James is really about practical faith. That's kind of the core of the uh, of theme that we're taking through this book. And I'm going to just kind of do a little bit of review from last week to start, just kind of recall a couple of things. Because really last week and this week are fairly tied together in a sense. But last week we talked about how James is really concerned with justice and hypocrisy. And he's writing to Jewish Christians all over the nation. Right? He's writing to Jewish Christians and he wants to highlight issues of justice and issues of hypocrisy. And this is really anchored in faith. He offers us some solutions to that. And part of that was last week, I'm going to recap that, but part of it is this week too, he offers us some solutions, or I should probably say some protection against this justice, this issue of injustice and slipping into hypocrisy. And again, it's anchored in faith, his, his big point from last week was that it's anchored in faith in us seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord's will through this. He does this by looking at the heart of judgment. So he does this interesting idea where he starts with the judging of others, and then he immediately and quickly expands that into the roots of what judgment is, which he then goes and says, well, look at the heart of judgment. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say that I'm in the right and I am taking the position, he expands it rapidly, he says, then we're trying to take the position of, I am God. I am making this judgment over not just individuals, but the entire law and the rules of how one should act. And he said, that's, that's Jesus' job. That's not my job. We try to take control of things. We take control. We, we take the role of God in declaring what is right and what is wrong. And this should not be so. Remember how he says that? But this should not be so. We, 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 we honor God and then curse men. We're not very good at that. <laughs> We're not very good at that, so we need to be careful. There's the quote that, that from last week that I really liked. Why would we want to pick up the residue of the original sin because this is in the original sin, right? This is the, to, be, to judge good and evil. That's part of the, the fruit of the original sin. Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to pick that up? So he lays out two very practical, I always forget to start the timer, and that's good for me, not for you guys necessarily. <laughs> um, James wants to, so James does this in two very practical examples. And these are his concerns. And in the two practical examples, they're framed around money. So that's gonna take a big theme of today. Like, yay, that's one of the easiest things to talk about at church, isn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, uh, we actually, Donnie did a series earlier this summer called Rival Gods. In Rival Gods, he focuses on uh, what is called the, um, the unholy trinity which is money, sex, and power. So go back and review those. They're really pretty good. Recap a little bit on the money side, but it's, this is the, one of the most difficult subjects to talk about in church, for sure. And, and James really frames these two practical things around money. And first, he offers us the solution, which we talked about last time. In uh, James chapter 4, verse 13, Right? he says, instead, or this is chapter, verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do business in these towns. I'm gonna make and he says, well, we should stop there, and we should say, if the Lord wills it, because what are we doing? Well, I'm in charge. God's not in charge. He says, stop. So there's the first, there's the practical solution. And then he presents what the alternative to this is, which is today's sermon. It's gonna be a little bit more challenging, we should say. Um, He basically shows, what does this look like? And we're gonna read verse, uh, chapter five, so this tips into chapter five, verse one through six. So he asks, um, what is the Lord's will? And to do otherwise is self-worship. If I continue reading that, he says, we should ask, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. What, what, what this is pointing to, the interesting thing is that that word boasting there, the word boasting can be translated as worship. That's why I called it self-worship. When we're boasting, we're saying, hey, look. Hey, look, at, look at how well I'm doing. Look at, look at the business I have. Look at my investments. We're boasting, and that term is worship. We're worshiping, such worship is evil. Then the alternate, the alternative to this is what we're going to cover. Again, James puts the vehicle of money into use. So let's read a couple of the examples and why I want to put these together is I think that they're put together in the way that James is thinking. And the the reason I say that is because they both begin with the same term, come now. It says there, right, when you read through the, the scripture there, says, verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, I'm going to go to such and such town. And then chapter 5 begins with, come now, you rich. And this term, come now, uh, the Greek is age which literally translates as go to now. Okay, well, that's a weird term. But it's kind of like saying, hey, look here. Now, now look here is what he's It's it's a very aggressive, authoritative term that he's using. Now, look here. So he gives us this piece of wisdom, and then he says, look here. This is how you're acting. Look here. So I'm going to read verse 13 uh, to the end of chapter 4, and then we'll read chapter 5. I'm going to do this, because I did bring my glasses. (laughs) Um Verse 13, we have this, uh, it's gonna be on the um, screen behind me if you can read along digitally or paperly or, on, or, or um, visually, whatever, it's all visual, right? Okay, so he says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. In such boasting is evil. So so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, this is sin. This is called the sin of omission. You know the right thing to do but I'm just going to sit on my hands. This is the sin of omission versus the sin of commission, which is I know this is the wrong thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyways. I'm actively sinning versus inactively sinning. There's still sin, and that's what James is saying. Hey, you know this, and to not do this is sin. But this is the key to this whole section, I think. That's why I wanted to review it. If the Lord wills, this is James's key. And he points to this that is gonna be a theme throughout all of this, is your life is a mist. You're not in the control seat. Dial back your judgmental heart. You're not in the control seat. It's a mist. Seek the Lord's will. Really, this applies to, I mean, this is a focused around business and money, but really, this applies to everything, doesn't it? I see this as the pinnacle of James's practicality here, in a sense. And then the second, come now, and he's gonna ratchet it up a bit. It's a little bit harsh. (laughs) Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Ouch, (laughs) a little bit more brutal. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and their cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on this earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the days of slaughter. You have commended and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. At first I read that and said, well, that sucks. Thanks for that piece of scripture, Donnie. So I might go to the next chapter, sorry to steal that from Craig, because Craig's teaching on the next chapter next next week, but I kind of might step, dip into that, because I don't want to end there. It kind of sucks, doesn't it? That's pretty brutal language, isn't it? There's this head nod. Remember I talked last week about James kind of does this head nod to super, super deep concepts, and then just leaves it on the table and walks away. It's really what he's done here for me. Like, oh, there's this head nod of serious judgment, and then he's just going to walk away from it. He's not going to develop that at all. Well, I, so as a biblical scholar, what we should be doing, we should be reading this and saying, are those terms I've heard before? Remember we talked about how James is very Jewish. He's reaching into um, the, the Psalms and the Proverbs. He's reaching into a lot of Old Testament. He had he'd memorized the Old Testament, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. This is it. He's writing it. So he's reaching into the Jewish history, and he's bringing that forward and handing it to his Jewish audience and saying, hey, everybody, don't forget. And he's going to point back to the Old Testament prophets and their warnings, and there it is. Boom, plain as day. I want to read uh, Job chapter 13. I'm going to read this out of the text. Job chapter 13, you're gonna see some of the similar. So last week, I was reading out of a different Bible, right? (laughs) Well, um, Marley had her big, gigantic Bible that she was gonna take with her on this missionary trip, and we're like, that's kind of big and bulky. Maybe she should grab something smaller. Here, this is a smaller NIV, so she took my Bible, and then I, today, yesterday, went, oh, dang. I don't wanna bring my big Bible, so this is Ayla's, actually. (laughs) Ayla's cute little bumblebee Bible. It's a bumblebee Bible. <clears throat> it, it, it helps me in my uh, masculinity to use the bumblebee Bible. Okay, I'm gonna read out of Job chapter 13. <clears throat> I don't think we're gonna have it on the screen. I'm gonna read it out of the NIV though, so if you're reading along, maybe at a different uh, translation. But I'm gonna go 13 verse 28. And I'm going to cross over into 14 all the way to verse 4. So 13:28, Job is writing, So man wastes away like something rotten, like a garment eaten by moths. Man, born of women, is of few days and of many troubles. He springs up like a flower and he withers away, like a fleeting shadow he does not endure. Do you fix your eyes on such a one? Will you bring him before your judgment? Who can bring what is pure from what is unpure? No one. So you see some of the same theme, we're a mist. It's a mist. Who can make pure from what is unpure? No one. Well, someone can. Um, I wanna also buttress that with Isaiah chapter 30 because here's the hope. Here's Isaiah writing about the hope of Israel. And I think that we see similar language. We see similar language about the, the days of slaughter. Um, I'm going to just read the first verse of chapter 30, and then I'm going to jump to verse 18 and read through 25. So Isaiah verse 30. I want to start here because this because all prophecy starts here, right? And I think we should start there as well, which is Isaiah writing, "'Woe to you, obstinate children,' declares the Lord, "'to those who carry out plans that are not mine, "'forming an alliance, but not with my spirit, "'and they're heaping sin upon sin.'" Then I wanna jump to the hopeful part, okay? <laughs> Which is verse 18, you run down to verse 18. "'Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. "'He rises to show your, you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, blessing all who wait for him. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious will will it be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, your teachers will no longer be hidden. Will your, uh, with your own eyes, you will see them. With your, with your turns, uh, uh, whether you turn to right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk within it. Then you will, uh, Then you will defile your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold, and you will throw them away like a menstrual cloth, and you will say, Away with you. I'm going to jump down to verse 25. And then in the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall and the streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill, the moon will shine like the sun and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of the seven full days when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds of the afflicted. One is the brutality of it, right? He's saying there, woe to you children who are making plans without my spirit. But I think it's important to always finish the book of Isaiah, which is always this glorious, but we're gonna come back and there's promises of healing, there's promises of of just holiness, of redemption. Again, this is extreme language. James is sticking this in here from the Old Testament, extreme language, also tying together that idea of brevity, of the brevity of the world, the effervescence of the world, right? Your life is a mist. It, imp- it appears for a little time and then vanishes. And we hear that echo from Job. We see that in, 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 in Isaiah. We see that all through the Bible, And that's a huge part of this. When we take control of things, we think that it's so now. It's so, we said yesterday, last week, so tangible, so easy to grab a hold of. And scripture keeps telling us, oh, but it's a mist. Oh, but it's a mist. Oh, but it's temporary. It corrodes. We're stuck in this human condition of being, existing right now, and the tangibility of those joys, those those pleasures, those temptations, and the image that Isaiah is painting up, what we are going to become, the being and the becoming. That's part of the human condition that we're wrestling with through all of this. The corrosion of wealth, the corrosion of the world, the corrosion of our flesh as we age, the result of us being our own gods of our own lives. That's what we get. That's what our, we're promised there. This really is the answer to the, the age-old question, why do the unrighteous prosper? Why do the unrighteous... bothers me, too, and that's been asked over and over again. Job asked it over and over again. It's all through Scripture. Well, here's kind of the answer to that. Well, because they're rewarded something that corrodes. They're rewarded something that is a mist. Our promise is the next life, and this is so small. It's temporary. Even so, for some reason, we keep falling to the slavery of these idols. It's not fulfilling. In a sense, it's not fulfilling to the true human needs. It's not fulfilling. It's temporary. Now, here's the faith in action. Right? This is what James wants to talk about, faith in action. But this is the opposite of the faith in action. Right? This is faith in myself. This is faith in that I can control things. This, this is the sin is the witness against faith. The faith isn't in the Lord. The faith is in the world. The faith is in me in my ability. All these practical examples root from us acting as God pointing back to the last section. Not seeking for God's guidance, that's sin of omission. And so they're right in between, in that scripture, right in between this brevity of wealth and the judgment of God, James puts these words so that you can see the perspective, I think. The perspective of those who injustice is being met. it's like you're, 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 he says in verse three, uh, gold and silver, corrode. The corrosion will be evidence against you. It'll be eaten your flesh. You, you're trying to lay up treasures in the last days. And then here's that, that perspective piece of those who are dealing with the injustice. Behold the wages of the laborer who've, you've, who've mowed your fields, which you have held back by fraud. They're crying out against you. You're, you're, this perspective is like, but, but look at what's happening as you collect up the wealth of the world. You're hurting people. You're hurting people. We were hurting people. The world is hurting people. Businesses are hurting people. The governments are hurting people. We individually are. We need to recognize that. We're hurting people in our seeking of the world. We treat God's most, and I mean this very, very purposefully, we treat God's most awesome creation in a way that it is just matter, that it's not, it's just an object, just a tool. When we oh, I'm just hiring these people to mow my field, and if I can hold on to the money a little bit longer and gain some more interest before I pay them, we're treating it like they're just objects. Imago Dei, made in God's image. They're not objects. Every human being, if they're a follower of Christ or not, is made in God's image. This is awesome. We need to take that into consideration. There's echoes there of Genesis chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. The injustice of Sodom and Gomorrah cries out to the Lord, and this is why he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. James says the same thing there, right? The, the, the fraud that you have kept back is crying out against you. So remember, James is drawing heavily on Matthew. We, we can pattern a lot of Matthew's teaching into James's teaching. So I wanna, translate, I wanna transfer from James over to Matthew because these are Jesus's words. We always got a point of where's he getting this? He's getting it from Jesus. He's getting it from Jesus's teaching. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, and I'll read through to 24, and we'll take some pieces out of that and run with it for a little while. Uh, This will be on the screen, I believe. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus teaches... Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be filled full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is your darkness? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can serve you cannot serve God and money. This word there, money, the direct word is mammon. That's the word in Greek. Mammon. Has anybody heard the word mammon before? Wow, what such biblically educated people. (laughs) Good job. So mammon, um, in a sense here, we kind of feel, see, Jesus is personifying money because he says, you can't serve God and mammon. He's personifying, well, I'm serving God, well, which is an idol, right? Mammon, this money, and serving is an idol. But when he personifies it, in a sense, he starts making it into a living idol, almost something that draws us away and is active in drawing us away. This personification of riches ends up having a a deep history in the church. I'm gonna put up a drawing here. It might be a little disturbing to some, but this is uh, from Frederick Watts, 1885. He drew a picture of mammon. When mammon gets so personified, did I, no, did I not do that yet? Stop. I'm not there yet. Mammon. Mammon. (laughs) Now I'm trying to summon mammon. I hope not. There's cash bags in his lap. His feet are on the human beings and he sits in a throne with such power. Mammon being personified, there's this deep, deep history of the concept of mammon not just being personified, but mammon being a literal demon. A literal demon that comes out and tempts us. We believe that or not, I, I, don't, I don't know because it's church history, and a lot of church history is very figurative. But something's going on, I'll tell you that. This word money even comes from even comes from Roman gods. So when the Romans were minting money, they, they the first mints were in the, the temple of the goddess of Juno. And this term, uh, the temple, the term is uh, moneta, which means like the, little, the literal action of minting coins. And this is where we get the, the word money. So, in a sense, this word money even comes from the creation of money out of the Temple of Juno. And the Temple of Jun- the Juno is the protector of the state, okay? She is the, she's the mother to Mars, who is the god of war. And she's the daughter of Saturn, the god of time. You see how that's all placed? Really curious. Interesting stuff? What does it mean? I don't know. But at the the foundation of this, look, it's worshiping an idol. No wonder these ideas become personified as a demon. No wonder they do. It sure makes sense, doesn't it? I want to point back to the scripture, uh, verse 22 in Matthew 6. The eye of the lamp of the body. The eye of the lamp of the body. There's an interesting little interlude into this. Jesus is talking about where you store up your treasures and you can't serve God and money at the same time. But he sticks that thing in there about the eye of the lamp is the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if if, if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. This point of, it's, it's perspective, right? It's, what am I seeing? What, what, we, we all have a perspective. We all come to everything looking through a set of glasses, uh, which sometimes they're genetic pieces. Sometimes they're, they're family pieces. How was I raised? They're cultural pieces. It's, it's, what am I influencing myself with? What books am I reading? What movies am I watching? This shades our glasses and our perspective, When Jesus says, I'm looking through light, and I'm filled with light, or I'm looking and my eye is bad, it is filled with darkness. Seek first the kingdom, is also in chapter six of Matthew. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be given to you. If my eye is clear, and I am seeking the kingdom it's going to be handed to me in the way that I, that I, that, that's healthy for me. But if I am seeing through a, a jaded lens, it's going to taint everything I see and everything I do. It is jaundice. Do you know what I mean by that? Jaundice is the color, right? My, my liver isn't working. It isn't cleaning out my system. It comes to my skin. It's this yellowish, it's a color. I'm jaundiced. Everything I see and everything I do is going to take on this shade. We want an eye that is clear because it's seeking the kingdom of God. So with all of that in the background, it sure seems like money is evil. Doesn't it? We even see it in 1 Timothy, right? Paul writes to 1 Timothy. We don't need to put this on the board. I'm just going to read 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money sure seems evil, doesn't it? Well, let's talk about that. Well, first, confession time. I like to confess up here. Confession is so... We're leaving and but this is kind of a comical one. Maybe <laughs> we'll see, <laughs> we'll see how you judge me. I, I was working with a group of people, and the lottery was getting really big and it was really exciting. And so, we all started chipping in money for the pool lottery, right? We all chipped into the, the, the company pool to win the lottery, and we all talked about, Oh, if we win this, this is going to devastate the company. Right? We're all going to leave because all these wonderful things we're going to have and that we're going to do. Oh, there's the, there's the, and so here's Kylan, here's the moral of the story. Here's Kylan playing the lottery. <laughs> the universe is telling me something, and I'm not sure what. <laughs> um, I honestly, I literally prayed earnestly. And we got together, a group of people, and prayed earnestly, thinking all the great things that we could do if I won the lottery. They so wouldn't have to spend 40, 50-plus hours a week working. I could jo- join ministry. We had I donate so much to Life Roads and start other ministries. I've become a philanthropist and all these wonderful, great things. I was serious. I earnestly, earnestly prayed. And I mean, I really, I did. Well, that little gif tells you the story there, right? Does, okay. Well, does that make me evil? Am I evil because of that? I don't know. Maybe. Well, maybe not my heart's trying to be in the right place and then we think to ourselves oh winning the lottery yeah oh that would have devastated your life kylan there's so many stories of people winning the lottery and their life is in ruins so i did a little research on that because i was like that's great data boy i could stick that bad into a sermon and go never win the lottery it'll destroy it's not not very valid honestly we didn't pan itself out the way that i wanted it to Uh, only like 10% of the people that win the lottery actually end up in financial trouble. The Washington Post did this big study on it, I read through. There was a Berkeley study that did the same kind of thing and looked through everybody, all these people that won the lottery and what happened to them and there were some horrible tragic stories. There were some really wonderful and uplifting stories and the moral of of the, the whole article from the Berkeley study was really kind of this idea of what happens is your life becomes amplified. If you're not in a good, healthy place financially, and it's because of bad patterns, this is gonna amplify it. But if you're, honestly, a guy like me, we manage our money fairly well, not super well, it, all it's gonna do, it's gonna amplify it. I'm gonna do some cool and wonderful things, it probably wouldn't destroy our lives. It's just, it amplifies things. It's not that it's evil, in a sense. The evil is someplace else. The problem really comes is when we equate it to happiness. That's where the problem starts really coming in. Okay, all this money and I'm gonna be so free and so happy. No, you're not. In fact, it's gonna bring new stresses and that your life's gonna be pretty much the same kind of stuff. It's just gonna be maybe a little bit financially amplified. We need to be careful with that. Without scrutinizing, without scrutiny of this, money is recognized as the medium of exchange for everything. Not just for goods, but everything. It becomes the exchange for well, life. I mean, there's the, 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 the story about, um, about Ford Motor Company, and Ford Motor Company realized the Pinto would explode if you rear-ended it, right? They did this entire analysis on how often they think it would happen, what, this, what the court cases were going to be and what they were gonna to cost to pay people off who died and decided to recall the Pinto was more money than to take on these, uh, these legal fees. Okay, that's, that's equating life and money. Wrong direction a little bit of the philosophy of money. What is money? What is it? We talk about it a lot. Boy, it seems to be in everything in our life. And like I'm asking here, the root of this is, is it evil then? Because it seems innocuous, innocuous. It seems totally, it's inanimate. It's not something that's alive. Especially now that I I have this joke, it's like I never even see a dollar. I go in. I put in my labor. They transfer this magical number to my bank. And I walk up. I show them a piece of plasticky thing. They transfer to me a candy bar. I, what what's what going on there? It is the weirdest thing in the world, isn't it? I don't. I mean, we don't even need a piece of plastic anymore. I grab my phone, and it just does this magical feel, Boof, boof, boof. And hey, candy bar. It's so. It's not real. It's totally ethereal, what is going on? The philosophy of money, money is used in three fashions. One, it is an exchange of goods. If it's literal or if it's ethereal, it's an exchange of goods. We exchange things. The concept there is there's a commodity, I change that to money, and I change that money back to a commodity. That's the whole concept behind this, right? Um, Karl Marx actually goes and criticizes this because he says capitalism breaks that. This is something to think about. Capitalism breaks that because it actually goes opposite. It is money, I convert it to capital or I convert it to a commodity and then I convert it back to money. And Marx's big criticism is money becomes a central portion of all things and it should be commodity. I think he's got some wisdom there. We, we, we give Marx a really bad time because of his philosophies of communism, which we all know is there's no philosophy that promised more and delivered less. That's a quote from R.C. Sprawl, if you will. There's nothing, no philosophy that promised so much and, uh, and, and produced so little. As a matter of fact, it's been insanely damaging. So we rip on Marx for that, but it comes out of this kind of concern. He's looking at things going, money's the central thing and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be capital and money, it should be commodity. The second portion of what is money, it's a unit of account. How do we account for things? The whole concept there of commodity, exchange to money, back to commodity, um, probably isn't actually valid. Uh, we go and we dig back into the archives of anthropology back about 2100 BC is where we see some of the first stories being, being written. So they're, they're chiseling into, into, into rock stories. One of the oldest is the Epic of Gil- Gilgamesh. Uh, some time ago I got a teaching on that, which is, um, you can go and look up. But prior to the Epic of Gilgamesh, they're all records of debt. They're all records of who owes who whom. So most of us, most anthropologists think that the, the development of money came out of accounting for debt, not commodity exchange. Boy, that kind of changes a vision of it, doesn't And the third portion of this is value it is a way to equate value of things. This is valuable. That you know, oh, oh, that's worth five bucks. This is worth this much. This is worth a hundred dollars. But I got to like really. I don't think that's that's worth nothing to me. But it's worth thousands of dollars to somebody else. So what does that even mean? There's this famous uh, uh, saying from from a Roman philosopher, Publius, and he said, "Everything is worth that which its buyer will pay for it." <laughs> Which is true, which is funny, too, which means it's worth, well, that's variable, isn't it? really kind of throws money into this weird place. So again, the problem really becomes when, when we measure worth that, um, that's a utilitarian worth with money when it isn't. When we're measuring time, we're measuring injury, we're measuring life. These cannot be equated to money, but yet we do. And again, to give Marx some credit, that becomes our primary motive then. If we start equating all these things to money, like Marx is saying, then that's where my motive gets driven to. Adam, so I mean, there's positive things about money Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations said, hey, look, look, there's good things in this, right? I've got some corn and you've actually, his his exact example was, I bake some bread and you brewed some beer and I would like some beer and you would like some bread. And there's a nice exchange and we're all happy. These are good things. So, there are good things about this. And if I hold on to my bread until you're done brewing your beer and it gets moldy, then that exchange doesn't take place. So the portion of money in between that is valuable. Many monasteries and many, uh, like John Wesley even says, uh, look, there's good things that are produced from this. Hard work is valuable. So is probably seen better. So money is probably seen better as a balance. How do we balance this stuff? Uh, First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, all things are perni- permissible, but not all things are beneficial. It is not edifying to God. Food is good, food is good, yes, but it sure can be ab- abused. We can go in the wrong direction. Sex is good, but boy, has it been abused. Leadership is necessary, humans need leadership but it has been horribly abused over the years. Church leadership is good, but it's been abused. All creation is intended for good and to glorify God, but it is corrupted. And that's what we end up seeing there. You know, we take a step, I want to just take a step back from that all and go, look how brilliant the year of Jubilee is. When I was studying through this, this came to my mind and I was like, oh my goodness is God brilliant. Look how brilliant the, all of this that we we're, we're gathering we're, we're 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 collecting money we're recording debt and then God says clean slate clean slate everybody start over every 7 years clean step, De- debts are cleared uh, I mean it brings the value down to our senses ground zero no generational baggage It's a reminder of where our sustenance comes from. It's a reminder of of the origins of our sustenance. Alfred Edersheim uh, is a a guy, I've got some of his books, he's from the 1800s. He was a Jewish convert and he writes a lot of history of uh, of how the Jews would read the Old Testament. And here, he had a great quote when I was studying through him, the secular, to the secular, nothing is spiritual. And to the spiritual, nothing is secular. There's a, you know, look at this balance. There's no servant that can serve two masters. Without Christ, we can do nothing. Remember Jesus' teaching in um, Matthew 16? He's asked, um, uh, it's, it's a story of the, of the rich young ruler, and he says, give away everything. The rich young ruler comes and he says, uh, how, do I, uh, how do I have salvation? And he says, we'll give away everything. This is specifically to the rich young ruler, and he walks away sad, and Jesus says, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's disappointing. So, the disciples heard this, and they were greatly astonished. Well, who could be saved? I'd be asking that too. And Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. I want to bring that all the way back. Without Christ, I can do nothing. I don't want to emphasize that. Without Christ, I can do nothing. I mean, I can do a lot of stuff, but it burns away. It's worthless. It's meaningless. It's a mist. John chapter 15, verse five through eight, Uh, you know, I wanna read it. I'm probably gonna go long, but I wanna read because John 15 needs to be coupled in James. Really need to know John 15 to live out James well. James, I've had a buddy, right, say, James will wreck you if you don't have John 15 because James is saying this is how faith is acted out upon, but it has to be anchored in Christ, has to be anchored in Christ. Chapter uh, chapter 15, the vine and the branches. Chapter 15, verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish and it'll be given to you. This is to my Father's glory and that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. There, there's the balance. You have to have a fulcrum to make a balance. John 15's that fulcrum for me. Abide in him. An unbalanced tool is not a very valuable tool. It makes everything rotten. It makes the church rotten. And to our chagrin, and it makes God sorrowful. It seems like it's a tool, money, seems like a tool to empower, but true power comes from Christ. Monetary power is a counterfeit to true human purpose and meaning. Remember the perspective? Is my perspective from God's eye or from mammon's eye? There's this really famous story. I actually looked this up because I questioned it and I wanted to see if it was valid or not, and it's not valid, but it's a good story anyways. There's a story from Samuel Bent. He wrote um, a book called Familiar Short Sayings of Great Men. It was published in 1887, and he tells the story of Thomas Aquinas going and visiting Pope Innocent and upon entering this presence Pope Innocent had the treasury laid out in front of him and he's basically saying look at how powerful the church has become and isn't that a glorious thing and church innocent says to him or pope innocent says to him um, you see that the church is no longer in the age which it must say silver and gold i have none referencing acts chapter 3 verse 16 when peter is coming along and Uh, There's a beggar and he, he says, I have no silver and gold, but this I do have. Pick up your mat and walk. That's what he's referencing. And Thomas Aquinas replies, True Holy Father, neither can we say anymore to the lame, rise up and walk. The power went to the money instead of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I know this is false? Well, it didn't take very long to figure out, well, Pope Innocent died in 1143 and Aquinas was born in 1225. So they never met each other. He was alive during the time of Pope Innocent III, but that's not what Bent wrote. Did Bent write it wrong? I, I don't know. I don't know, but I don't think the story's true. But it's got a good point to it. So the, the, I want to bring up another uh, person from history. This is super important. Francis of Assisi. I think Francis of Assisi is just a really powerful, powerful figure in all of history. 1181 to 1226. He, uh, he was in the army. He was a POW for a year. And when he was released, he was really, really ill. And so he dedicated himself to solitude and prayer, asking for the Lord's will. Have you ever... What is the Lord's will for me? Have you ever heard this? Oh my goodness, I get asked this so often. What is the Lord's will for me? Well, Francis of Assisi wanted to know this as well, and so he focuses into prayer and fasting. And he has a vision, and in this vision, Jesus comes to him and says, Go, Francis, and repair my house, which, as you see, is in ruins. So he struggles with this, how to do this. And there's many different stories about him trying to figure out what this means. And in the end, Matthew chapter 10, verse seven comes to him. And, uh, and I'll read that. And this becomes his life's journey, Matthew chapter 10, verse seven. As you go, this is Jesus talking to the disciples, as you go to preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along with you gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for this journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. And this becomes his life's journey. He, become, he, he starts a group called um, the Franciscan monks. And they take the, the concept of the monastery and they say, we shouldn't be isolated. We're supposed to wander. And they become the friars. And they start becoming these wandering monks, walking around in poverty. All that they live off is what's given to them. And they're, they're preaching they're preaching the, uh, the good news. Um, I, I'm going to put up an image, the, the uh, stigmatata. In the end of his life, he is praying and he has this vision and the heavens open up and a, a seraphim shows up, the six-winged seraphim, and, he, and Francis of Sisi wakes up with what's called the stigmatata, which is the wounds of Christ. He wakes up with the wounds of Christ bleeding. And he tries to keep it quiet, but he can't. Everybody knows it. This painting was only six years after his death. And he, for the rest of his life, carries the wounds of Christ. How moving is that? There is value, and I mean, so symbolic, so deep. So what are we supposed to do with this, right? Where are we at with money? What does money mean? Is it good, is it bad? Are we supposed to give everything away? So what are we being told here? Are we all supposed to give it away and become friars? I mean, the patriarchs were wealthy. Job was wealthy. I think the whole storyline is, where are our resources? They come from God. Who are we trusting? the sender's faith. Abraham, here's the most important line. It wasn't really about Abraham's wealth. It was that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the anchor of a lot of Paul's writing. It's not about the Lord will provide. And it provide differently for different people because we have different needs and different skill sets and it's different. But it is counted to him as righteous because he believed. It's anchored in our faith. Um, if you point back to the, 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 uh, the sermons that Donnie gave a little while ago about the three unholy, the unholy trinity, he tells a story about the, the shrewd, ma- the shrewd um, servant, right? A really weird, difficult parable to, to unpack. But one of the concepts there is shrewdness, that that shrewdness was commended. And I just want to read really quick what the conclusion of that was. Um, just to recap, if you're not familiar with it, there's a manager of money and he's fired and he realizes I can't work hard. I, I, I don't want to bag, And so what he does is he goes with his debts with his master's debts to all of the people who own debts and say, hey, you help me out and let's make this debt half of what you pay. And when it comes back to the master, he he commends him. He says, oh, you're very shrewd. That's very sneaky. And he doesn't, beat him or have him arrested. So it's kind of considered positive in a sense, which is really strange. But this is, this is the words of Jesus when he's teaching it. He says, uh, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, which is also wise, which is also translated as wise. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in the dealings of their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends of yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, mammon, so that when it fails, they may be received into eternal dwellings. In other words, be wise with that. Be shrewd, be wise. You can use these things for the good of the kingdom. Don't worship them. Really difficult and weird weird set of verses, but it's kind of pointing to, like, this isn't evil, it is innocuous, but use it for wisdom. Don't start worshiping it. So to dip into next week's sermon, James chapter five, verse seven, I wanna say there's the two lessons to walk away with, the two practical pieces from these. One, seek the Lord in all things, as if nothing else matters. Seek the Lord in all things. And then two, from James chapter five, verse seven, be patient, wait on the Lord. Seek him in all things and be patient. We get so impatient sometimes. James chapter five, verse seven, he says, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the earth and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. It is at hand. It comes off of that very prophetic series of fattening your hearts for slaughter. Is that where you're going? Or are you pay, praying, seeking the Lord, and being patient? There's, there's a curse on our culture, and it's the tyranny of the urgent. It's so hard to be patient. It's so hard to wait. It is a conspiracy. If there's a conspiracy to distract us, I don't want to get too serious and vivid into this, but if I grab that concept of the mammon, there's a conspiracy. I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, okay? Anybody out there who talks to me about this stuff, I usually try to squash them because our imaginations can get out of control. But if there's a conspiracy that I really do believe in, it is a conspiracy of Satan. He hides himself. He wants us to not think he's even there. He, he wants us to put a little cartoon image together of horns and a tail. And, but he is a glorious light and tempting us all. Get out. He was the be- most beautiful creation of, of, of God. And he has a conspiracy to distract us. And he has an army to do it. And one of his generals is Mammon. Take that figuratively, take it literally. I don't really care. But there's a conspiracy to distract us, and Mammon is a strong, strong attraction. He wants to distract us from the kingdom to this physical world, to, oh, what my desires are, and I know better. There's a clandestine agent whispering in each human's ear, telling them the false values of this world. And I'll be honest with you, I can't fight that battle. Not even in the simplest form can I fight that battle. Quick little short story. Buying vehicles. I'm so bad at it. So bad at it. I'll sit down and do my engineering study and build my spreadsheet and saying this is exactly what I want. This is what I want in a vehicle. This is what I'm willing to pay. And then I get on the lot and I'm just like, I don't want to play this game. Fine, I'll take it. And it's not what I wanted, and it was more than I wanted to pay. And I walk away just going, Why'd I, why? Why did I fall into that? I'm impatient. The goods are right there. Oh, it's right there. I'm going drive to drive this <laughs> new truck off the lot. Yes. I can't do it. I suck at it. Okay, that's vehicles. What is it for you? What is it for you? I mean, is it, is it, is it food? Is it shoes? Is it cars? Is it movies? Is it... I mean, I could go on and on. What is it? What is it for you that you just, yeah, I don't have that control. I don't have that control. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The desire is at the core. I have to desire what God desires. And that takes prayer, that takes focus. That's faith being acted out. That's what James is talking about. Seek first the kingdom of God. Protect yourself from judgment. Protect yourself from these desires of injustice by seeking the Lord. I want to finish with Proverbs 30. (laughs) I want to finish with Proverbs 30 because this is a really, really wonderful prayer of balance. And I'll end up praying over it as well. But Proverbs 30, 30, um, uh, verse seven through nine. I do think we have that for the board, yeah? We have that for the board. chapter, verse 30, seven through nine. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying, give me neither Poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful to me, lest I be full and I deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and I steal and I profane the name of my God. That is an excellent prayer for balance. And if I'm able to pray that, don't give me riches. If I'm praying that instead of help me win the lottery, Lord, then my heart's in the right place. Give me what I need, Lord. Let's finish that in prayer. That is what I ask, Lord. Give us all exactly what I need, what we need. Give us that balance that our hearts seek you. Help us understand exactly, exactly what your heart is for us. That the what is worldly is ethereal and what is eternal is from you. Bring our hearts there, Lord, that our faith is acted out in such a way that it opens eyes like Francis of Assisi, that it changes the world, that we might walk around with the scars of Christ. It doesn't even need to be literal, but I walk around forever with the scars of Christ in my heart such that everything I do, everything we do, everything we do as a church, everything we do as a capital C church is carrying around the wounds of Christ such that we are your tools of healing, your tools of unifying, your tools for eternity. In your name, Lord, amen.